This is the Between You and Me podcast, a production of the KAXE Morning Show. I'm Chelsea Perkins, News Director, here with Heidi Holton. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Chelsea. Well, you're here to tell me about this event you just got back from that you were all jazzed about. I was, and I am still. So I was invited to kind of lead the keynote talk at Springboard for the Arts, their Rural Futures Summit, and it's in Fergus Falls. That's where their rural office is. They also have an office in St. Paul, and they do this thing that's uh, Rural Regenerator Fellowships, and they have cohorts of people that, that get funding and coaching and, you know, learn how to kind of, as an artist, market yourself. I mean, all these really sort of interesting things. And so this was sort of their gathering of two of the cohorts and also interested people, artists. And it was a closed event, but a lot of people invited to it kind of thing. So uh, the reason I was very interested is because it's not just arts, which is very important, but it's arts in a rural area and how it pertains to economic development and stewardship of the land. And so what I ended up at and led this conversation, which we're about to hear thanks to them sharing the audio, was really about people's connection to the land. It seems as though when a local government, just any local government, is facing some sort of shortfall in funding, what are some of the first things to go? It's it's things (laughs) like this, arts. It's investing in, quote unquote, placemaking, as the terminology Mm -hmm. is, that it seems to be some of the easiest things to turn away from. But you talk about how it's more than just the art itself. There's many other things that this relates to in how our culture in rural places functions. There was one woman on the panel, her name was Maya Williams. I asked about a connection to place and she's talked about the Mississippi River and because she's now living in Winona and she was, she was very funny. She says, I, I don't trust lakes, ponds. I don't like still water. I need to move and I want to know what's happening. It's like, what? And she's like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, you know, that to offend anyone here, but I just don't trust lakes. See, that's so funny because I always feel less comfortable by rivers yeah. than I do lakes. Yeah. <laughs> like, the river's just unpredictable, it feels like, or just the fact that it's moving on its own yeah. is like a little bit disconcerting. Right. Well, and I, you know, it's, I think people don't always tie all these ideas together about rural people, about land, like how land can inspire you to do better in community if the land means something to you. She talks about sitting at a river and what it does for her in terms of her writing and the ideas that she has. We don't always tie that to arts, to writing or to anything like that when it really is inherent in what we do, especially if you're in rural places. And I think, you know, there is a national narrative that rural places are one thing and that they are not diverse and that they are, you know, 20 years behind everybody else. And we talked, too, at great length about how cities would die if not for rural people. We're making the food, is what (laughs) one of the women said. So, um, yeah, it was really, I was very glad to be asked there and to get away, honestly, to get away from the office and to hear people talking about big ideas. It was, it was just heartwarming. I was glad to be there. It's always inspiring, I think, to be surrounded by people who are in the stratosphere, right? That are having like these high level conversations about things and you feel like you're going to kick the garbage can on your way out the door because you're so pumped about just, <laughs> you know, everything that mm-hmm. that's happening, that there's so many. It, it's rejuvenating for me when I'm around people that are trying to think of solutions for things and trying to have positive feelings about the direction of our world because sometimes you can fall into a funk where you don't feel like things are headed in the right way and being around people like that that are that are forging ahead anyway and trying to make a difference where they live man that can really pump the tires so I do want to recommend Springboard for the Arts. If you are an artist or you know an artist, they have a lot of information there. They have fellowships that are going on. But they have information. Um, you can watch classes and do things about like how to market your work and how to connect with people. And they really build up, especially a rural arts world that is making a big difference. 
And we're going to hear some music on today's podcast, too. We are. Eliza Blue agreed to uh, let me use one of the songs that she played. This was kind of, I was trying to meet the people that I was going to be on the panel with so that we could warm them up and stuff. She was playing the song and she talked a little bit before. I'm not going to remember, of course, exactly what she talked about. She talked about an author who had written this book, and I think it also was a kid's book. But the idea was that as the world goes, we have new words. We have new words like broadband and internet. And this idea was that you have to take away when you put a new word in, you need to take away a word. And she said that what's taken away is always the nature words. And so it was the song she had written inspired by this idea that that nature is getting farther and farther away from us. Interesting. Yeah. And here at KAXE, nature is part of our everyday experience. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Check out Phonology in the Season Watch newsletter, not to be an ad, but holy cow, it is infused in everything we do, including us sitting here on the banks of the Mississippi River. So you get a chance now here to hear the panel discussion at the Rural Futures Summit of 2023. It was in Fergus Falls. And what we were posing, and you especially want to listen to the end because there were some just tremendous answers to this idea of what is the future of rural. Follow me. excited to introduce Heidi Holton. When I invited her to moderate this and she said yes within five minutes, I, I did the happiest dance of the year <laughs> in my office. Um, I've known Heidi for a few years and have admired her from afar. She is the, um, the Director of Content and Public Affairs at KAXE Radio, which is um, based out of Grand Rapids and Bemidji, right? Um, and she also is the local host of Morning Edition um, from NPR. Um, so what that means is that we're actually recording this conversation and we're going to work with KAXE to rebroadcast it at a later date. Um, and if you don't know about KAXE radio, you should definitely check it out. It's just an amazing independent radio station that does so much more than just radio to support the community and especially artists. Um, so let's welcome Heidi and then she's going to introduce our fellows up here. Thanks, Heidi. You're, you're welcome. This is... well. First of all, I'm a crier, so Michelle and Nancy, you've both made me already cry, so this may be continuing on as we go through this. Um, Michelle, thank you for the kind invitation to be here. Um, I live in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. It is a very special place to me. I grew up in Brainerd, um, and I want to invite all of you, if you're ever in Grand Rapids, please look me up, or in Bemidji, please come to our radio station. It is filled with art and music and life, and you are all welcome there at any time. Um, so please connect with me. I would love to get to know all of you more. So the question of this panel is what future can we build together? So we're going to be kind of talking about some big things, some little things. Um, I'm here to listen. I'm here to ask you all a few questions, which is my job each and every day. So as Michelle said, 
I'm on the radio every morning. Thank you for not, I did not have to get up at five o'clock this morning. It was lovely. So KEXE was the first rural public radio station in the nation. When our founders wanted to get it started in 1976, they went to the, you have to get a license from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and they said, nobody in a rural place will listen to public radio. You will be broadcasting to a bunch of gophers. And here we are, 47 years later, larger, stronger, independent. It, it is an amazing thing, and they were absolutely wrong. <laughs> rural people want art, they want news, they want music, they want diversity. That is sort of what we provide to the people of northern Minnesota. You may not have people like you in next door, or you know, down the road from you, but there are people everywhere in the woods that understand you know, what you are living through. So I am so glad to be here. Um, we're also one of the only radio stations in the entire country that has a commitment to play to playing half female artists. We work on that every single day. No other station does that. They see women's music as being that it all sounds the same. <laughs> they, a lot of places you'll hear, you never hear two female artists back to back. Um, we also play, we try to expand our, what we do all the time by all of the artists that are out there. So thank you again for being here. So we have some really, really big questions to ask, but I want to start with some really little questions. I did not tell you guys this. You're probably not surprised, but Autumn, Tell us about Bob Barker and your connection okay. to Bob Barker. <laughs> um, wow, that's a heck of an introduction. Um, I don't know how I'm going to follow this. So most people don't know this, but Bob Barker, the host of The Price is Right, you know, does it, is everyone familiar with The Price is Right? You know, kind of like game show in the back. My kunshi, my grandmother, always referred, oh, always had this like massive crush on Bob Barker. And, you know, she's this tiny little little Indian woman. And so um, all of her grandkids, like, jokingly called him Unkana Bob, like Grandpa Bob. And it wasn't until later on I realized that he actually, he is Lakota. He's a native person who is this host for this thing, which, is, like, made it doubly funny. Um, but he's also a pretty radical environmentalist. He gave money to the Sea Shepherd. There's a boat um, that hunts whaling vessels called the Bob Barker in honor of that. He's also one of my favorite characters on Futurama as a talking head. That might be all I can say on Bob Barker. That's, that's, that is perfect. That is the exact amount I wanted to know. <laughs> so, Adam, um, also just tell us about yourself a little bit and where you're from. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> After that. Uh, so, normally my introduction is a lot more formal. It, it goes something like, um, I, my, in English, my name is Autumn Cavender. I'm from the Upper Sioux Reservation located in southwestern Minnesota, or as we call ourselves, or the land where they dig for the yellow medicine. Um, I am Dokota. I am um, a mother, a wife, a midwife, um, an artist, and a writer, um, as well as you know, pretty much anything else people ask me to do on a daily basis, like so many of us in this room. Thank you. Rufus, what have you learned from the squirrels? <laughs> Thank you for addressing the squirrels. Um, <laughs> probably everybody in this room who already knows me knows the story of, of the squirrel. My partner, Louisa, her, one of her, she's a musician. One of her stage names is Matron of Squirrels. We have a big squirrel obsession going on in our house. And recently... Louisa had rescued a, an injured eastern gray squirrel and brought the squirrel home, who then lived with us for many months over the winter, recovering. Their name is Michelle, by the way. And <laughs> they, were, they were just recently released back to the forest. I, what I learned from, from this particular squirrel, I think it's a lesson about boundaries. Like, really, like, like being assertive with your boundaries, like, taking up space, essentially, like, 
it became the squirrel's house. It really was not our house. And uh, we, were the, we were sometimes tolerated, but mostly not, not welcome. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I think that's my bit about squirrels. And, yeah. <laughs> Tell us your name, where you're from. Sure. Rufus Jupiter. My pronouns are they, them. Uh, and I live in Viroqua, Wisconsin. <laughs> Thank you. Which is in the Driftless area meaning uh, it is unglaciated. The glacier missed this area going through, and it's kind of in the southwestern part of Wisconsin by the Mississippi. So, Maya, I appreciated your honesty this morning, um, about morning. Um, So we have a segment every Friday morning that's called What's for Breakfast, and we ask people to just call in and tell us about their breakfast. And it's a... It's a trick. They don't realize they're telling us a lot about themselves when they tell us what, what they're eating for breakfast. So you're probably not surprised, but I want to know about your coffee today, <laughs> what, it mean, what it means to you. <laughs> okay, it's already on. Um, coffee is medicine, first and foremost, um, especially, okay, so <laughs> first I need to say thank you. Thank you very, very much to Michelle and everyone else who coordinated to get me non-day coffee this morning because I was dying um, because I normally don't wake up this early and um, I normally don't have to talk before I drink coffee. That's just, anyone who knows me knows I walk into the office with a latte and that's how we start. Um, But I do think, honestly, that what coffee really is, is it is my response to having ADHD and refusing to take an upper. So I just live off of coffee instead because it's easier for me to moderate, like, to take it in and out, Um, which I wouldn't need if it wasn't for industrial capitalism. So it's not, that's (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about yourself and where you're from. Hi, I'm... (laughs) I'm Maya Williams. I am first and foremost the mother of a 16-year-old. I spent, um, yeah, by the (laughs) way, it's an amazing experience. Everyone should be the mother of a 16-year-old girl. (laughs) 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 I spent my 20s and uh, half my 30s living outside of the U.S., living mainly in the Middle East and Africa, so that usually informs the way that I see things. After that, I moved a bit in Latin America, and then I moved to Winona, Minnesota, so that my daughter could live in the U.S. and get that very important uh, U.S. accent. Make sure, you know, that it's, that's gold. That, that will make you more money than having a PhD in other country, from another country. It's just the truth. I didn't, I, didn't make, I didn't make this world. I just live in it. And I've lived here for eight years. Winona is on the Mississippi River. It's a river town of about 25,000 people. And I am a writer, multimedia artist, midwife, abortion doula, nonprofit worker, social practice, blah, 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 so on and so forth. And also a coffee drinker. So, thank you. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> Awana Gijic. We bonded instantly over our earrings. So tell me about your earrings. The earrings I'm wearing are ones that I made. Let's see, I think they're, they're from one of my first collections as a, when I first started making art professionally. What they are made out of are porcupine quill embroidery and birch bark, and then there is 24 karat gold beads and green beads. So tell us where you're from and about yourself a bit. Buju Gakina Awia, Awanagijik, Bruce, Nindijika Jaganashi Mang, CP Singh, Ndunjiba, Oma Mekanako, Wajawing, Wabi Jajek, and Dame. That's a standard greeting. So what I said is, hello, everyone. My name is Awanagijik Bruce in English. I said I am from where the little creek that's, the little river or the little creek that sings on the Turtle Mountain Indian Reservation, a.k.a. Belcourt, North Dakota. Um, and then I also said I am from the White Crane Clan. Okay. We got the hard questions done already. So, <laughs> so and feel free to, I'll ask one of you, but feel free to just chime in if, if something resonates with you. So you all in some way mentioned kind of nature and like land and so I'm wondering if there's something in nature in the land where you live right now that makes you 
feel like you are connected or you are home. Um, wondering if I should just put one of you on the spot or if anybody wants to respond to that. Okay, thank you. So one thing about the land, like right now, I noticed it was mentioned earlier with our panelists, our, I mean our keynote. One thing that's blooming right now is one of my favorite orchids, the yellow lady slipper orchid. The reason why I like it is it's strong, it's resilient, it takes years to grow, but then it's beautiful. It's a very powerful medicine, one of the most powerful used. It used to be known as American valerian. So it used to be able to take people out of some kind of, you know, like hysteria, as they would call it in the old days, and then, but if you take too much, it can put you in hysteria. But the reason why I really like that plant is it has a symbiotic relationship with the um, fungus in the soil. And when you think about it in this sense, it's like, when you really think about soil and plants and us as, a, as extension, is we're all interconnected, interwoven in this like uh, network of communication. Anyone else, did that bring up anything? Um, I think I would piggyback on that with another plant that I connect to that I also like, I see some symbiosis going on um, and that is stinging nettle is definitely like, I feel like a friend in my environment. I feel very comfortable around stinging nettle. I, I enjoy that the self-protective like properties that it has. Um, and it also, this is a very powerful medicine. Um, I have utilized a lot, and I feel like I have a, a good relationship with this plant where like um, I'm not... I have no fear of it, um, and I regularly harvest it and interact with it um, in a way that it feels it feels friendly. Like I don't get hurt by it, and and I also enjoy that stinging nettle likes to grow near um, jewelweed, which is you know if you happen to be injured by stinging nettle, then uh, jewelweed can be an antidote to that. And I like that partnership of them growing in the same environment. Either of you? I think kind of in, in the vein of plants, the prairie roses are up now where I'm, where I'm from and along the road that I live in. And, um, you know, within, within our oral tradition, prairie roses is like the first flower. It's the first one that kind of comes up. And I do. I, I love the, the self-protective nature, the, like the stabbing of it. You know, it's not like normal rose thorns when you buy them commercially. They're, they're tiny and they, they like stab into you repeatedly and there's like thousands of them along the stem. It's just a, a flower that is unabashedly beautiful and also gives zero fucks. <laughs> and I appreciate that about it. <laughs> um, but I think this idea of like land connection is also really always interesting when you talk to native folks, um, you know, native folks versus, you know, versus honestly like settler cultures. And, you know, what it means to be connected to a place means something fundamentally different. Um, you know, to be, you know, we have oral stories that, you know, we can date through the, through the astronomical knowledge within the stories, we can date them to 26,000 years ago. Um, and so within that context, that's 26,000 years worth of human generation being buried in the same soil, which means people who have died, who have become dirt, who have become trees, who have become animals that graze on them, who have become animals that prey on those animals, who become people again in turn. And what that means means for connection when we talk about our collective relatives, when we talk about the non-human world and non-human intelligence, it's not just a, a, a metaphor. It's not like some like kind of fluffy, hippie-ass language. It's something very deep on the molecular biological level that the very dirt rises to embrace your feet as you walk on the ground. And to call a place home, fundamentally for me, means the place where your ancestors are buried. And that, and to to be exiled then in your own homeland from those places is really um, difficult, and it means that there's always a very complicated relationship with home, uh, a complicated relationship with with how you interact with other people then who also have connection to place, and and equivocation, or not, <laughs> you know, within those contexts. Maya, how about you? And thinking about it, I had two answers, and I think they both connect, which is not a plant, but the river itself. Um, and I say that because um, my father's family is from New Orleans, so they grew up, our family grew up, 
they grew up like on the other side of the river because New Orleans ends the Mississippi and we're up here really north like we kind of begin the Mississippi and so even though my father's passed away for over 10 years when we moved here I thought oh okay like this is really grounding for me and I've always lived no matter where I've moved by a really powerful river um, whether it's the Jordan River or the, or the Nile or the Mississippi, um, I've always found myself in places where there's like water moving. I'm not a fan of lakes or ponds. <laughs> I don't really like still water. I don't trust it. No, no offense to the Midwest, <laughs> but it, it doesn't, I don't, I don't know where it's coming. I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it's going. I don't know why it hasn't moved. Any, it, <laughs> but, but yeah. And it helped because Winona is a place that's very different from the other places I've lived in my life for a lot of the reasons that Nancy mentioned. And oh yeah, thanks Nancy. I didn't wear waterproof mascara, so okay, great. Um, but um, No, but for that, I was like, ah, oh, okay, as long as I'm near the river, as long as there's running water, as long as it's going south, it'll be okay. So yeah, that's it for me. Um, let's let's talk about rural places. How do you describe rural places? Do you think there's a story there that really doesn't get told that a lot of people don't know about? Yes. <laughs> when we talk about rural places and how we usually see them represented, particularly in mass media, it's always as flyover states. It's always, um, and then when I talk to like fo- like friends of mine, even from urban places, what I always hear is like, "There's nothing out there." There's nothing out there. And the amount of frustration and you know, borderline rage that I feel at that response um, is, I think, deeply rooted in feeling the same thing when I'm in urban spaces. I go to an urban space and I think, there's nothing here. There is one kind of tree, there is one kind of grass, it is all gray, you all drive your freaking cars, and there's nothing here you can't even see the sky. And so um, I, I want to highlight that, if, if nothing else, and I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir a little bit here. I mean, this is, after all, the Rural Futures Summit, so all of you have to care at least a little bit about rural things, or otherwise you wouldn't be here, hopefully. But this idea I, I really want to just push back on is that there's so much here. There's so much diversity. There has to be, um, because particularly in um, urban spaces, you actually don't have to have very much emotional intelligence to live there. If you want to find someone to agree with you, you can find someone to agree with you about anything. You can exist within your own echo chamber and actually never have to interact with anyone who thinks differently than you. But if you want to be in community in rural places, you're going to have to get nice and cozy with ideas that are not comfortable to you, with people who are not comfortable to you. You don't get the luxury of living in an echo chamber. And it's something I deeply appreciate about it. It forces me to be a better person. Does anyone want to add to that? Wow. Yeah, I would for a second. Two things I thought of. One is that so my family's from rural South Carolina. Like, they don't even have a, we just got a street named on our land, you know, <laughs> like we had a box and that's in a number and that was what we had for, and we've had that land since right after the Civil War um, and it's about between 40 to 100 acres. Someone has to come out and do the measuring sooner or later, I don't know, um, but I've told my mom that it has to happen because the next generation, will die. I mean, it's just going to become a legal mess. Anyways, so we've had that land for like... I don't know, since 1870-something, and we're not sure how we got it either. Supposedly, there was a rich white man who one of my great-great-grandfather knew, and he agreed to go to an auction to purchase the land because no one would bid against him, so it would be cheaper, and then he signed it over to us. I have no idea if that's true. That is, anyways. And we're also part Lumbee as well, which is why we are where we are. And um, the, what I want to say about that is when people speak about rural spaces, I always think it's odd because I always thought of like country as being black because that's the only people I ever knew who lived out in the country. <laughs> we're like my cousins. I grew up in the suburbs and city, but like 
we went back there like seven times, eight times a year. I spent every summer there, like second home, everything. And so moving out to the Midwest was a very weird experience because suddenly rural meant something very, very different. Um, like very, yeah. So I think part of like being out here in the Midwest rural is realizing that I don't know that like the idea of what it means is it means to be conservative, it means to be very homogenous, it, it's a certain assumption about how people in rural spaces live and for most of my life the people who I li knew lived in rural spaces weren't like that. Not, I mean not only in the US but like we lived in villages in the Middle East, not, we never, you know, like to be perfectly honest, white people lived in the cities like because <laughs> So I think that's one of the things I try to push back about a lot is the idea that people of color, BIPOC especially, black folks, don't want to live in rural spaces, that they don't love nature, that they don't actually love the land, that they don't, they don't take care of it. You know what I'm saying? Like where my first experience is, is quite different. Um, anyways. Well, you both kind of hit a nerve. You said, Adam, you said flyover in the Midwest, and so when I'm sitting and listening, you know, in between, when I'm talking on the radio, so listening to Morning Edition, and then they have a story about a rural place, and they talk to the same person that they talk, you know, that they talked to yesterday about a rural place. You know, they get interested in rural places when, you know, politics, when it matters in politics. And so the, I can't remember years after the pandemic, <laughs> Donald Trump had been in office for two years. And they were watching northern Minnesota because it was going to maybe flip the Senate and they, they wanted to come here. And so they called me and said, can you help us set up some people to talk to? And I got very excited. I'm like, oh, I'm going to meet National Public Radio people. You know, who am I? You know, I just got very nervous and all this stuff. And so these people came, five people came to, do, to spend a week that they were going to tell the story. And I was kind of their tour guide. And it was great. I learned a ton from them, but I also learned all, <laughs> I, what I didn't expect. Like one day, we were standing waiting to talk to this person, and I, I live in a town that makes paper, and so you will see the largest wood piles you've ever seen in your life in this town. And so we were just standing there, and I pointed across the street, and I said, hey, you might want to take a look at this. So a young producer from Washington, D.C. It's probably the most wood you've ever seen. And she's like, what are you talking about? What, what is that? And she's looking at it, and she goes, what is it for? And I said, well, that's, they make paper. That's, you know, we're a paper town. And she said, are you telling me that paper is made of wood? And I was like, ha, you're funny, you know? And I looked at her face and she's like, she didn't. She just didn't know. And it just, I mean, that's an extreme example, but it also made me understand of like this connection, you know, like you know where things come from. You know what things are made of. You've touched it. I mean, it was just, it was, and then it's like, then she's the person telling the story of a rural area? Made absolutely no sense to me. So it's not my time to tell a story though. Rufus, <laughs> would you like to say anything about rural places? Yeah. Um... And also, like, nice, <laughs> nice, nice wordcraft, both of you. I, I love, like, everything that was expressed. I, I think my addition to that is uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, how I interact with my community is uh, kind of centered in uh, my queer identity and just um, acknowledging that, that dominant narrative of queers don't belong in rural spaces um, and it, trying to like unravel that a little bit like for myself for my community um, and it, uh, yeah it feels like I had I had that internalized quite a bit when I first moved out to rural Wisconsin and uh, yeah feeling like I wasn't allowed to like carve out a space for myself or like not having those resources available and um, yeah so that's like a big part of the work that I do and just trying to be a visible queer person in my community um, is really feels like a big deal to me. I guess what I think about rural places is I think about some of the stories my grandfather would share. Um, you talk about when he was young in the 
fifties, he would go with his great his grandpa, and what they would do is it was the old style living where they would travel throughout the, the prairies, and back then the prairies and the natives that lived there, they had communal homes all around the prairie, so you had the little house on the prairie as you'd say, and if someone was staying there, you'd move on to the next one. But if no one was staying there, you would use the provisions and then you'd re-add to it. And then just thinking about that and the idea of land and relationship and culture, it really kind of helped me understand how um, my elders taught me what the old culture was. And then being young, I really saw what is old culture, what is modern culture. And then being the person I am, I'm thinking, how do we forge the future culture? How do we make it move in a better place? Where I come from, I would say that the energy of the people that I grew up with is the sense of resistance and rebellion. We have really fought for our rights throughout, you know, hundreds of years. We come from the people of the Iron Confederacy or this kingship between Assiniboine, Ojibwe, Cree, and the Métis peoples. So being in a place like this, some of the Pillager band that's here in Otter, that was a part of Otter Lakes got reincorporated into our band as an example. So when I think about rural spaces, I think about that sense of being resilient because growing up and seeing my dad, who's a dark-complected native, um, it used to frustrate me being um, followed all the time or being um, told, oh, you're a thief or you're, you know, you're, um, you're a troublemaker and all these other things. So like I said, I think about rebellion and I think about resistance and resilience at the end of the day, like leadership. So like how do you do is to change? Like with our tribe, we worked on like the, the Savannah Act that helps pave the way for um, more um, work towards missing indigenous uh, women and relatives. And then it just, the way I think of rural places is it's just, it's the connections with our land, our culture, our teachings, and what can we do to make a difference? Because you think about like some of the plants that we kind of shared here, a lot of it's, a lot of them really, um, a lot of the thing that you, a lot of the teachings from the land that you can learn is this idea of resilience, of defenses, of ways, and then even ways to source nutrients when it's like drought resistance. So ideas like that. So this it has already been inspiring your your time together all of you here together is i'm sure you've all been inspired already by the words here but i kind of want to know from each of you something recently that has inspired you inspired your work inspired a day um, something that kind of gave you a little hope in your day maybe could be people could be plants I think one person that really inspired me is Rufus sitting right next to me. Our last um, fellowship retreat in April, was it April? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, we ended up doing this um, activity that we're kind of talking about in our meetings online. And then we finally just, I think it was Molly that said, oh, by the way, do you need, Molly or Dominic, they're like, do you need that paper? I'm like, paper? So what um, Rufus and I worked on is we... We just pulled out this huge paper. I, I think it was like um, probably like a hundred uh, feet, or a hundred in inches. I mean, and a um, hundred inches by five feet. I think. And um, anyway, we we sat there and um, we sat there, danced, and did figurative drawing and sketching. And we just made this immersive gestural sketch. And ever since that, I've been thinking about it, like because. I'd like to be a dancer, I just haven't had the experience. But watching um, Rufus do in a freestyle dance and as I was tracing footsteps and doing figurative strokes, um, it really changed the way I view art. Anyone who knows me already knows I work on way too many art forms. <laughs> so I, I work on about 40 different art forms and I'm always trying to figure out new ways to combine them. I'm always trying to figure out ways to combine science with art too. but. I think just with the inspiration, I think I get really inspired by people around me, getting to learn from other people, and I really love collaborations because there's some things that other people do and then their process that just watching them and you know working together, you learn so much from each other. Thank you. Same. Like um, 
at this last retreat that we had, it was about just like being present with each other and creating in that presence and to like to witness how easily pretty much everybody fell into just like doing their craft like <laughs> day in day out that was very inspiring to me because sometimes like i don't know i'm a busy person i do a lot of things and to just like decide to like dedicate time you know it's very intentional for me and so just to watch that progression of people just like hanging out and like now we're all drawing and now we're all doing this or that um and then to you know have this spontaneous moment where like this idea was presented of oh do you want to like grab some chalk pastels and like roll around on some paper and do like some freeform like movement drawing thing like that like really unlocked something for me and like just the spontaneous nature of it and how cool it turned out like that was really really fun um but yeah definitely inspired by by some of you that I've like only just met last night and like this whole community is like uh it really helps light a fire under me um okay this is that was really beautiful I want to see that actually first off I'm just like I want to see the what the gesture of it so this is a this is I left my condo from Minneapolis, and Rowan picked me up, and we left, and I was, we were riding for about 30 minutes when I like panicked and realized, you ever have that like, oh my God, I left the oven thing, you know? And I was like, I left a candle burning. Oh shit, right? So, excuse my language, not sure that's allowed on radio. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, like, oh, because I had been trying to clear the air of some other stuff, and so I lit a candle, and it had been burning for days, but that's fine, as long as someone's in the place, I'm fine with that, and we, I left, and my daughter had left to go to dance, and so I like call up my daughter real quick because I'm gonna be gone for three days. And I'm like, "Hey, can you go back to the apartment and turn out, blow out the candle?" And she was like, "It's already done." I was like, "Oh." So um, my great love and inspiration right now is my 16-year-old kid who is growing up so amazingly and rapidly to be a good seed on the planet, and. For a lot of years, um, because of a lot of things, because I made some choices as to how I was going to raise her and where I was going to do that, um, I had some deep fears that everybody else was right, <laughs> and that you could not, that you had to do things in a very traditional way, or your child would end up really messed up. And either despite me or because of me, we can't be sure yet. We'll see how it falls out in the therapy. Uh, <laughs> find out, she has become like one of the most responsible, loving, gentle, easy human beings that I know, and one of my really good friends, and honestly, a good roommate, which I think should count for something, because that's not easy to come by. Uh, <laughs> who like keeps her room messy, but like will do the dishes, and I just feel like that's the vibe I always wanted to live with. And that inspires me because it makes me think that maybe, just maybe, like if you do that work of like, what are you calling that, tender rebellion? If you do that, like that, that love work, that care work, and you like try to make, try to let people, speak to people without contempt, without that deep criticism, if you let them grow and be who they are, they might actually be good seeds on the planet. So yeah, that's where my inspiration comes from. And, She's the first person who gets thanked in every book that I write because she's like made me much more than I've made her. So. I guess I have two moments that really gave me a lot of hope recently. The first one that I'm gonna talk about happened yesterday. So one of, the, one of the realities is there are certain opportunities that don't exist in rural spaces that do exist in urban ones. And one of those for young children is the ability to learn how to be a circus performer. And so my, my eight-year-old is in circus camp right now. And, um, you know, because we were going to be away for, for so long, uh, my partner and I went to go pick him up from circus camp before we drove here to Fergus Falls. And so we picked him up um, from St. Paul, and we were driving back to Plymouth, where my in-laws live. One thing, um, I don't know how, how much time y'all have spent around, like, eight-year-old children, but they're kind of chatterboxes. Like, 
and, and it's really sometimes hard to like get a word in edgewise or even respond before they're on to the next thing. And for whatever reason, for this like entire drive while we're stuck in bumper to bumper traffic, which another thing about living in urban places like you, and we're struggling to like get down 494 or whatever road we were on at that point, and the knock knock jokes were relentless. <laughs> relentless, ongoing knock-knock jokes, and I'm going to be real, that did not make a whole lot of sense, because while he may be really into knock-knock jokes, he's not super great at telling them yet or making up his own, and so really struggling to kind of keep up, and by the end of it, I'm like, dude, I can't do any more knock-knock jokes. I can't. (laughs) Like, we need to take a break, and then we're, you know, dropping him off and trying to get the car loaded, and he's like, hey, Nana. He's like, yeah, knock-knock. That kind of childlike hope of, I know you just told me no, but I'm really excited about this thing, so I'm going to keep going. No matter how annoying that may be to me as a parent in the moment, is hella inspiring. It's a perpetual faith that not only is this thing that I'm doing awesome, but that other people will also eventually see how awesome it is. And that I believe firmly that this will make the world a better place if we just tell one more bad knock-knock joke. And I, I hope, I know that I've lost that kind of faith. I, I know that I'm, I'm jaded enough where that's hard to grasp. And I'm really grateful that I can still be reminded of it because it makes the next moment that I'm about to tell you about um, a little bit more magical. So for those of you who don't know, um, the Upper Sioux community, the reservation where I'm from, is about to get around 1,300 acres of land returned, which is a really freaking big deal. And as with any good thing that happens, a lot of people are going to have some negative thoughts about it. And not all of them are, are invalid. And recently, um, two organizations um, operating out where we are, um, the Yes House and Land Stewardship Project, organized a meeting to talk, to have people, um, primarily non-native folks, come together and, and talk about what happens next, right? Because now there get to be replacement acres or replacement amenities for the, the state park that is being lost um, by its return to native folks. And a lot of people showed up in that room super angry and upset. And through a lot of very carefully moderated heart work and talking through our feelings and all the feelings we were having about this, there was one person in particular who came into that meeting super ticked and not excited at all. And by the end of it, he sat there and he's like, you're right, I just needed someone to hear that I'm upset about this. I needed someone to hear that I have a connection and I have feelings to this place and I'm feeling like I'm losing something even though I might not be. And now I'm excited to figure out how we can work together as a community to build something new. I will not agree with that person about probably 95% of things. But that moment was magical of you and I don't need to agree but we can come together as a community and build something beautiful. And that's super freaking awesome to me. So yeah, hope, we need it. So let's um, kind of end this first part of the conversation of your day today. Um, you know, it's, it's about what future can we build together was what, was what kind of our title here was. So let's, you know, what do you think? What is the future for rural areas? Good, bad, you know, what, what do you see there? I'll be quick and then I'll shut up. No. If there's no future for rural spaces, then folks, everyone in an urban fit space is gonna die. <laughs> we make their food. If we don't build vibrant, beautiful rural spaces, there isn't a society anymore at least as a civilized society that we have contemporarily come to think about it with. So it should be in everybody's best interest to be actively working on building rural futures and vibrant, sustainable, functioning rural spaces. And we make their paper, which apparently they didn't know. It's made of wood.
Well, I'll say, yeah, true, true. We make their food. <laughs> I don't personally make their food. <laughs> I, I barely make my food, but like <laughs> the people around me do. The best I grow, it seems, are apples. That's as good as we're gonna get from me. And chickens. Anyways, it's not the point of this. Um, but one of the things I definitely see for rural spaces is I think that as things become harder, I'm, okay, let me stop for a second. I realize it's an ideological thing I have to do first. So this is the apocalypse. Um, we have to start there, because if we don't, everything else I'm gonna say sounds really like, but okay, if anyone drove here and saw that like the sky looked like because supposedly that comes from Quebec, right? Because they're doing monocultural farming, and those, that's where the, that started the wildfires, and the reason they're doing monocultural farming there is because it does the carbon offsets, so that's why the sky looks the way it did yesterday. You know, I mean, I don't know what y'all thought the apocalypse would look like, but I thought it would look like that. Um, so, <laughs> so with that in mind, I feel like one of the things that's really important is that people be able to live in return or live or find healing and be able to breathe fresh air as fresh as it's gonna get in natural spaces, in rural spaces. And the people who are most concerned with being able to do that are the, those who are the most under threat. So from like for queer folk, trans folk, black and indigenous folk, um, folk who, you know, BIPOC folk, like people who, um, people who have disabilities, like I just mean like those who are most marginalized and those who are most vulnerable should have the right to be able to find some sense of healing, some sense of grace in the natural world. Because at least for me, that is what healed me after all the PTSS and X, Y, and Z and so on and so forth, was being able to sit near a river for as long as I needed to. Um, and so, if, so that for me is the future of what of, of rural spaces, is being able to make it so that, I, I think the vision I have in my head is something closer to reversing the idea that rural spaces are primarily conservative and white and super straight and Trump flags everywhere, which is where, I, I mean, it's, yeah. and that it becomes a place that is decolonized, re-indigenized, and brought back and held um, for people to do what I think is this natural work, it's honest work, it's healing work. Um, and I don't, and I, without that I can't, I just, I can't imagine what the future would look like if we don't offer or give places where people can actually find their own healing. Um, so that's, I have a lot to say, but I'm trying to think. Immediately, just to kind of coin in on what Maya was saying is, when you said the apocalypse and red skies, it reminded me of, um, well, if any of you guys, anyone here that um, really like to wander or nature walk. So when I was tiny, I would always, I really loved being in nature, especially in rural North Dakota. Um, there was this one moment that I, I still don't know how it happened or how I got there, but I remember wandering and nature walking, enjoying trying to find all the, the different plants I like or surveying and trying to find new plants. But at one point, I remember waking up, lifting off the ground in the middle of a field and then just realizing, wait, what just happened? And then I just remember um, I ended up getting um, having a vision of these three great giant trees that were just warning me about the future. And then when I was looking at it, the skies were red and black, and then everything was dying. And then thinking about that in the sense of being Anishinaabe, we have the Anishinaabe Seven Fires Prophecy, and there, um, there's a point in it that says we there's gonna come a choice from our um, um, light-skinned brethren that are going to, they're either going to make a choice of a path of destruction or path of like brotherhood, uh, reunification, peace. And the thing that I really think about is uh, growing up and being a youth leader when I was smaller is what is, how can we have healthy globalization efforts? How can we come together because it's going to take all of us to work together to resolve all the problems that are being made because of people's other people's making these these uh, these decisions for us. 
So um, what I think about rural futures, I think of the idea of solidarity and coming together and really working together to change our world for the better. Um, one thing that really inspired me as a 17-year-old is um, 17, 18-year-olds. So when I first started my leadership journey, I ended up getting to know this um, this leadership mentor, Dr. Davis, and she really inspired me and helped me out. And one the thing that she helped change and the other women that were there and the other leaders was we Turtle Mountain was the first tribe to fed, for to um, ban fracking, and later on, um, I was the youngest male presenting um, teammate in that whole. Um, thing uh, where we um, we changed the water code, the water constitution, and I really thought about in sitting in those groups um, for years. I wouldn't even acknowledge or say anything, and it was Dr. Davis and other people that are saying, "No, you are part of this. You need to start saying that." And then um, Dr. Davis ended up telling me, "Well, Carol," and she was like, "You need to remember, you walk through two blizzards to walk over here." Um, and um, I just think about with the idea of like water and how important that is for us and as in the sense of like in science, we're a Goldilocks planet where we need this water to sustain life. And I think about like, like what we're just talking about food and the future is we just need to protect our vital non-renewable resources. How can we all work together? because we all need each other. We need that idea of, we need biodiversity in, in our environment. We can't have monoculture. Um, we need to have permaculture, and we need to quit basically allowing governments to do warfare on the land around us. Like, technically, North Dakota would be considered doing illegal acts with our new water code because all the processes they're doing with the culture for producing all the grains and all the staple foods is in violation with the environment standards that we set. And we think about that just for the world is we need to, why aren't we learning from other, you know, other uh, better farming practices, you know? Definitely, you know, at the center of rural future, Absolutely, like, uh, you know, those of us who are of colonizer lineage, like, we owe reparations, like, on a massive scale. Um, and, it, yeah, that, that work needs to be done in order to step into the next reality. Yeah, um... <laughs> How do I want to say it? Uh, a, a rewriting of this narrative or this like image of like rural Midwest, rural America that like when I hear that in my mind, like I see like an old white cis man on a tractor in like a monocropped cornfield, and like that's not okay. And, it, you know, rewriting that precedent so that it includes the people who actually are part of that story and creating, like, a, a vibrancy that, in my mind, following this narrative is, like, that's not the deal. But in reality, like, it exists. It needs to be there. It needs to be nourished and to grow exponentially with, like, the embracing of the actual diversity of people who are parts of these spaces, who have always been there, who are choosing to be there. Um, yeah, just a new, a new vitality that uh, needs to be embraced and, and told. Well, I want to thank you all for your stories and your words. You've, I know, inspired everybody, but inspired me. I go I'll go back to my work with with the things that you have said and shared today, and it's, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me to be here, Michelle, and uh, I wish you a wonderful two days together. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Between You and Me podcast on KAXE, made possible by the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota, with music by Sam Milton.